James chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count it as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Uh, well, I was just old enough to remember when uh, this man's regime fell. Can anyone tell me who that is? That is Ferdinand Marcos. Uh, he ruled the Philippines for about 20 years uh, in the 60s, 70s and into the mid-80s. Uh, and it was a rather brutal rule. Uh, during his time, thousands of activists and political opponents were uh, either killed or, as they say these days, disappeared um, at the hands of the state intelligence agencies. Uh, and Marcos and his wife Imelda, uh, she was perhaps more notorious than him, uh, if you remember the famous shoe collection that she had, uh, they amassed an obscene amount of personal wealth while they were in power. It's estimated that he siphoned off something in the order of 5 to $10 billion of his country's money out of the, the Philippine Bank, the National Bank, uh, and put that into his own private accounts. He left what was already a very poor nation completely impoverished. Almost none of that money has ever been recovered Guinness World Records states that this was the greatest act of government robbery in history. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but that's what they say. Marcos himself uh, died a few years after he was ousted from power at the age of 71, without ever standing trial, without ever being convicted of any of the crimes that he was accused of. We see this, sadly, everywhere in the world around us, don't we? We see the wicked prosper and seemingly get away with it. Even in Australia, we see this kind of thing, perhaps not on the same sort of scale, but uh, this man's been in the news again recently. Well, in fact, he's been in the news pretty constantly over the last few years. That's Eddie Obede, uh, famously used his position in government to line his own pockets and that of his family members and friends. Now, at least he's received a measure of justice. Uh, he's currently serving a sentence but it was only last month, I don't know if you saw this story, that the Herald reported uh, that the Department uh, of Public Prosecutions has decided not to try and retrieve some $30 million that they believe 
uh, he profited from through the proceeds of crime. It's incredibly difficult and complex to get that money back. And so, of course, the wider Obed family continues to live this rather prosperous and luxurious life. It's frustrating, isn't it, uh, to see company directors just get a slap on the wrist and walk away from it when uh, they've squandered millions of other people's money. And you see those con men pop up all the time on a current affair uh, who've swindled vulnerable people out of their life savings. The wicked, sadly, so often seem to prosper. Justice seems to elude them. Have you ever wondered, well, what's the point then in being upright? What's the point of being righteous, having integrity, when the selfish and the corrupt seem to do so much better? And have you ever wondered where God is in all of that? See, when we see injustice and suffering, and I think even more so when we have some taste of that in our own experience, it really can take the wind out of our sails, can't it? It can erode our faith. It can be incredibly discouraging, cause us to question God's care, his goodness, whether he's really in control. And sometimes, even if we might not be quite compelled to throw in the towel when it comes to our faith, we may be tempted perhaps through our frustration and our impatience, to follow after the example of the the rich who seem to be thriving in their selfishness and in their exploitation of other people. In the passage we're looking at today, James wants to talk about the rich and the poor. And he wants to encourage his brothers and sisters in the church who are largely on the fringes of their society to stand firm in following Jesus. He appeals to them to be patient. He reminds them that God has not gone missing, that he's still with them, and that he will one day put everything right with his perfect justice. The passage we're looking at today flows out, naturally, uh, from the one that we looked at last week, uh, but the themes continue as well. Uh, Last week we saw James warning us against a kind of godless arrogance that shows itself in these boastful plans people make about the future. Uh, And there's a continuation of that here. Um, There's this particular focus that he has on the rich. Uh, Although, as we'll see, it's not really about the money. Uh, Pick it up there from verse 1 of chapter 5. We'll read those uh, opening verses of this section again. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So James here, he condemns these people he labels the rich, uh, not simply because they're rich, but because of the way that they're living, the way that they have behaved. In particular, he points out how they selfishly hoard their wealth and the way that they have exploited others in their greed. Uh, The example he gives of failing to pay their workers is 
an atrocious one. And James wants to warn these rich people that a reckoning is coming. That God has seen what they've done. God has heard the cries of those that they've exploited. And he will deliver them justice. Now, I think it's helpful to notice that James isn't writing to his fellow believers at this point. Um, In other parts of the letter where he's criticised his brothers and sisters in Christ for their behaviour, it's always been with the hope of sort of correcting them. He's always challenged them to repent. There's always been this promise of forgiveness and restoration if they respond in that way. But there's none of that here. James writes more like an Old Testament prophet at this point, where he pronounces God's judgment on these rich people. And he calls on them to weep and to wail because their judgment at God's hand is near and it's certain. But if you wanted a definition, I think, of what many people in our world would say is the good life to aspire to, it kind of fits the description James gives of these people. Maybe not the exploitation part, but the lifestyles they enjoy. Uh, These are people who, James says, have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. And James also warned us against that mindset, against a kind of worldview that makes life all about accumulating wealth satisfying our pleasures. James says that this whole attitude comes out of a, uh, a godless thinking, the, the kind of thinking that we saw last week. See, when we deny that there's anyone that we're ultimately answerable to, when we forget that we're accountable to God, that's the surest path to ignoring what is good and what is right. It's why theology matters. It's why what you believe about God matters because when we edit God out of the picture when we take him out of our worldview, well you end up with a world where there ultimately is no judgment there's no one to hold you accountable for your actions and when you do that life takes on a different shape now that's not to say that all people who hold that worldview will go down this path and exploit others to their own profit but when you come to believe that this life is all there is to live for that there are ultimately no consequences for the choices that you make, well, you might as well live for your own pleasure. You might as well use other people to get what you want for yourself. Who's to say that's the wrong way to live or in any less valid way to approach life? There's a restlessness that comes from deleting God from our lives, uh, an impatience that comes from thinking that this world is all that there is. It's one thing to say we want to live life to the full, to squeeze the maximum amount of enjoyment out of life, Uh, but it's something else to be motivated by this fear of missing out, to feel this pressure to try and get all the pleasure that might be attained from our experiences in life, to set about accumulating achievements and wealth and power because that's all there is to have and to know, and to experience. It's an impatience that's born from this discontent uh, that we feel as we search for relevance and meaning in what is ultimately a meaningless existence. By way of contrast, James wants to tell us that we don't need to live that way, we don't need to think that way, that there's a contentment that can be ours that comes from knowing God. 
and a contentment and a comfort that's found in knowing that Jesus is not only in control but that he's coming again. And that this knowledge, uh, this trust that we have, it, it puts this world and it puts our lives into a unique perspective. And so that's why it's helpful for us to be reminded of both uh, the reality of God uh, and our accountability to God. It's helpful for us to have a bit of that old school fear of God, uh, the kind of fear that might keep us from doing something as evil as failing to pay the wages of someone that works for us. James paints a rather terrible but all too familiar picture of the corruption of wealth here, doesn't he? Uh, And it is invariably what happens when people lose sight of God, especially if you, you have power. And I think in pretty much any culture, the most powerful are the rich. And with that power comes the opportunity to exploit others. And so James condemns the rich here, not, not as some sort of socialist manifesto raging against the upper classes. Uh, I don't think James wants to hear suggest that all wealthy people behave this way or that no one in the lower to middle classes has ever been guilty of greed or exploitation. I think that's to miss the point. But this is the way of the world, isn't it? Certainly what James observed in the ancient world, that what comes to the surface when people have the means and the opportunity, sadly, so often is to exploit others for their own personal gain. So what we see, it's what history shows us over and over again. The rich exploiting the poor, failing to do even the most basic things like paying the wages of those who work for them. And so James musters up that outrage of an Old Testament prophet here. He says, God has heard the cries of those who are suffering unjustly. Yeah, the rich may have lived a life in luxury and self-indulgence, but James likens that to merely fattening themselves for the day of slaughter. Like a pig enjoying themselves at the trough as Christmas approaches, oblivious to what is coming. And so James tells these rich people, in a, in a rhetorical way, I think, to weep, to wail, because God's judgment is coming on them. Their greed, their exploitation, it has not gone unnoticed. God will not ignore it. But if the rich aren't really James's intended audience here, as I'm suggesting, why is it included in the letter? Why does James want to tell his readers and tell us about it? Why would God want us to appreciate the destiny of these rich people? Well, for a few reasons, I think. I think in here is an implicit warning to us not to be like them, not to envy their wealth, not to follow their example. And for those of us that have wealth, and in this country that's many, many of us, we should hear the warning in these verses. Not to be people who deal with others dishonestly. Not to be people who exploit those with less. Would you say you've ever been guilty of trying to hoard your wealth? Or to use your wealth to indulge yourself in a life of luxury? Wealth should be seen as a blessing from God to be used for good. Helpful for us to hear what God says about the rich here in James's letter. 
and to resolve to be nothing like these people. But I think the main intent behind James's rant about the rich is to reassure us that God sees, that God knows. God wants us to know that he is just and that even when justice seems absent in this world, God is keeping score. And that ought to be a great comfort to know that these things matter to God, that he cares about it, that he will hold people accountable. It may keep us from trying to take matters into our own hands. Um, Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with trying to seek justice in this world through the ordinary means of law enforcement, through our courts. But we also have to acknowledge that our justice is rarely perfect, rarely complete. So knowing that ultimate justice does lie with God, that it will be done, that ought to be a great source of peace for us as we live in this rather unjust world. It all forms part of the appeal that James wants to make to us, to his listeners, to be people who are patient, to be people who persevere. And we see him make that appeal explicitly there from verse 7. Read it with me, verse 7, chapter 5. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. James appeals to us here to be people who are patient, that we are patient until Jesus returns. Like a farmer who has to wait on things beyond their power to control, like waiting for the autumn and spring rains to fall, we too need to be patient, to stand firm, knowing that Jesus has promised to return. And it may seem like James is kind of advocating for what Marx would label the opiate of the masses, uh, where this promise of a better life is held out to the, the downtrodden, the poor, to try and keep them compliant, to keep them quiet about their suffering. But this is not that. Our response to the trials and the hardships that we'll endure in this life, the suffering that comes our way, that's to be an informed, conscious response which comes from the perspective that God gives us about this world, what he's doing in it, what he's doing through our lives. Yes, he does want to set our hearts on a promised future. He does want us to live with the perspective that comes from knowing that Jesus is Lord, that he's going to return. But that's not to be a passive waiting. God has things for us to do. And so James puts before his readers a few examples of people who have done just that. And read with me there from verse 10. He holds these people up as an example to us. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. 
So James mentions these uh, two kinds of people. Well, one's a group of people and the other's a man. Uh, He talks about the prophets and he talks about Job. He says these are examples of people who've persevered and shown patience in the face of suffering. Job's story is probably the most famous and well-known. The man, the wealthy man, who had everything taken from him, his family and his possessions and his health. And in it all, he refuses to curse God. He maintains his integrity. He says things he'd want to retract, there's no doubt about that. But he continues to place his hope in God, saying, shall we accept good and not hardship from the hand of the Lord? James here also mentions the prophets. He's probably thinking of people like the prophet Jeremiah, who had to courageously speak God's word to power in their day, to rebuke their kings, their priests, to pronounce God's judgment on the nation. And for doing so, well, Jeremiah gets betrayed by his own family. He's beaten and put in the stocks by an official. He's threatened with death on numerous occasions. The king has him imprisoned. James's point is that these are people who persevered through that. They stood firm and God honours them for it. James reminds us here that in uh, the Lord that we know is one who is full of compassion and full of mercy. I don't think we're to take from that that somehow God's promising that uh, living for him is going to be easy. You only have to look at the lives of the examples of the people that he's referring to here to know that that can't be the case. But every single one of us can expect well, not only to face hardships and trials, but also to know the presence of a God who cares for us, who promises to be merciful. And so James appeals to us to be patient, to stand firm, to persevere, to remember that God sees, God knows all that's going on in your life. His mercy and his compassion will be ever-present with you. And he promises that one day, one day there will be vindication. God will honour those who honour him. James teaches us all about this to, I think, give us confidence, to keep going in the face of suffering, to help us to endure hardships, to remember that they are, in the end, only temporary That may not be what the line you want to lead with when you're talking to someone who's in a pit of pain. But we do know, don't we, that God has promised us something which is far better than anything we have to endure in this life. And as we think on what is coming, as we wait for the return of Jesus, that should put what's happening in the present into some perspective and to help us to hold firm to Jesus. Life will always contain seasons that bring difficult things to endure. We can't help but feel frustrated and confused by that at times. Sometimes the suffering seems so great it threatens to overwhelm us. How will we weather those storms and emerge on the other side, faithful to God? 
Well, we can only do it if we remain confident in God, if we keep trusting him. And we can, with God's help. James reminds us that we can live a life confident in what God is doing, confident in God, in his plans for us, confident in his compassion and in his mercy, confident that God will bring justice, confident that our Lord will one day return, take us home and make all things new.